morning. Nice to see all of you. Today we're going to continue in the series called This Is Us. And the driver for this series is we recognize that there's a lot of different churches in the United States of America. There's a lot of different churches in Tucson, Arizona. And I love that because I think that diversity creates this really full picture. It does. There's a beauty to that. But what you come to recognize, and you know this if you've been to any one of these churches, including this one, is that each church kind of has its own personality. Each church has its own set of values and culture and different things to it, and you feel that. It's why it's so hard to move away from a church you love sometimes when you have to move across the states or something like that. It gets really tough. And so we have this series today called This Is Us that we've been in. This is week three. And the point of it is to acknowledge that, you know, of all these different churches, Casas is its own unique expression. Casas, this church itself, there's some core values, there's some beliefs and things that we have come to hold along the way that anchor us, that drive so much of what we do around here. And I think it's important to be transparent, despite all the things we share with all the other churches, but I think it's important to be transparent about all of that, to get a really clear picture of what that looks like. One, because it gives each of us the opportunity to embrace those values and to hold those things together so that we're unified. Uh, but two, I think maybe there's a challenge in it. Maybe there's a, a time, something to learn, something to grab a hold of uh, in here. And so in week one, Glenn talked about this idea that we're a church that believes in the power of environments. That it's not just about the words we speak or the things we teach or those things, but that the church itself is creating an environment whereby people can encounter God and, and, and grace and compassion with one another. And that each of us as people who go here are part of making that environment true. Uh, it's a big deal. In, in week two, last week, he talked about this idea that we've embraced this, this value, you can belong before you believe. And that's simply acknowledging, you know, everybody is in a unique place in their spiritual journey. Whether you have started with, you know, this is your very first time even being in a church or whether you've been to one for 30 years. It, it, either way, everyone's in a unique place in their spiritual journey. We want to allow the kind of space for each of us to navigate that together and grace to grow and understand wherever we're at, whatever questions we're asking, whatever it is we're trying to figure that out. And so there is space here and we intentionally want to make space for people. And today in week three, uh, I have the privilege of being able to talk with us about something that for me personally, as I have walked uh, through other churches, been a part of other churches and, and places and uh, gotten to know other leaders and different things, I think it's one of the things that makes Casas somewhat unique. And I don't mean special or better than every other church. I just, I, I think it makes us somewhat unique. Uh, and it's come to influence the way we teach, the way we preach, and, and so many of the things that we do around here. So today, this value that we're going to speak to that I get the privilege of talking to you about is how we here at Casas have come to view and approach sin. The idea of sin. A little over, I don't know, two years ago, I found myself in this place where I was sick all the time. Like I was sick all the time. I think some of you remember this because every time I got up to preach, every time I got up to teach, I had to apologize and be like, so you guys are all gonna hear me cough a bunch, bear with me, and I'd say that. And you, you, I know this was a thing because people started putting cough drops in my mailbox. People started emailing me like, I think your cough sounds like a little asthmatic. I think your cough, like people were trying to diagnose, like everyone was like, we want to help this forward. This has been too long. I, I was sick for a really long time. It, it just, I don't know what it was that year, stress, whatever, but I was tanked. And so it was uh, just before the holidays of that season, I came down with yet another cold. And this one was a doozy. It's not that 24 hour deal. It's the kind that just knocks you out and then decides to hang out with you for a long time afterwards. And so I had that ongoing cough and my nose was running like it was competing in a marathon and my face was, it just, all of it, I was having trouble sleeping and I was so annoyed by this. And so somebody, like, cause this ling lingered for months. Somebody finally came and was like, Ryan, 
you should probably go to a doctor. And I thought that sounded like great advice. So I went home and just Googled my symptoms and decided to go to Walgreens instead. <laughs> right? That is what I chose to do. Because uh, I, I didn't want to go to the doctor for whatever reason. And so I thought, okay, what, what do I got going on here? I've got a runny nose. Okay, I'm going to go get, you know, a, a, what is it, an antihistamine or whatever that's called. I, I've got a cough. All right, I'm going to go get a cough suppressant, and I need my lungs to clear up, so I'm going to go get an expector, and I bought all three of these things, and the reason why is because I had this belief. If my cough would go away, right, if I could just stop coughing as much, if I could stop dripping out of my face and sniffing like crazy as much, and if I could sleep a little better at night, then I could go to work and do the things that I need to do. I hate coughing. Because so much of what I do is, is dependent upon my ability to communicate with people. And what you find is that when you start coughing and sniffing, everybody just starts doing this. Like, get away from me because I have the plague. And so if that will just go away, then I can finally, like, do my job. I can finally hang in there and make this happen. And, and that's what I need. So I, I started this regimen of taking these things, like, every four hours, I think. And lo and behold, my cough was a little bit less. It was. I, I took some cough syrup and then, hey, I'm not coughing quite as much. You know, that's great. And then four hours later, it'd wear off and I'd start hacking again and I'd have to take it. I, I would take, you know, the antihistamine or whatever. My, my face would dry up and I'm like, wow, I can breathe again. I remember what that's like. This is amazing. And everything was great. And then four hours later, it'd come back and I'd find myself in the same place. And all of this just kept happening. And I kept up with this routine for quite a bit. And I did until finally, finally someone came to me and was like, remember that thing we said about going to the doctor? You should, you should do that. And I thought that sounded like wise counsel and that I should probably go get some medical advice before I bought more stock in Walgreens, right? Why am I sharing this with you? It's kind of a mundane, monotonous story. I'm sharing this with you because I think this story and this process, so to speak, that I went through, if you will, mirrors what many of us experience in terms of the way we view and the way we deal with sin. I do. I, I think there's a lot of similarities. I think what happens is, you know, we make a bad decision. We succumb to some kind of temptation. We, we do something. We make a choice, and that choice has consequences for ourselves, for our lives. Whatever that mistake is, we, we sin. This happens. This, this is a reality for all of us, right? Like, it, it's not just because you are, you know, in church or not in church. The most frustrating thing about becoming a Christian is realizing that the problems you had before, you still have. You just deal with them differently now. Yeah, maybe that was only frustrating for me. <laughs> but it's true. We still sin. Nobody's perfect. Everybody, we're new creation. Jesus has died. Sin has been conquered. Death has been slain. But each of us still find ourselves making mistakes. Each of us still find ourselves uh, being imperfect. Each of us still find ourselves in moments where we choose that thing. We succumb to that temptation. We do whatever it is and we make a choice and we sin. It's an inevitable reality for all of us. And I think there's a part of each of us that look at that and we're like, yeah, okay, but I'm in Christ and I, wanna, I want these choices and these things. I don't want that anymore. I want it to stop wrecking havoc in my life and my relationships. And so what we do is we try to deal with it. We do. We try to deal with that struggle. We try to deal with that decision. We try to deal with that sin. And we do this by shopping our church and by shopping our Bibles for recipes and protocols that will reduce or hopefully make our symptoms go away. 
And so we try a lot of different things. Some of us, we, we go straight to recommit. I'm going to try harder. We're just going to recommit. It's kind of like New Year's at the gym. Like, let's do this. You know what I mean? This is going to be the year. It didn't happen the last 20 years, but this year is different because nothing's changed. Like, we're going to do it. Recommit, right? Or, or we, and we try to clean up our act. We build rules and we build boundaries. We build boundaries on top of boundaries and rules on top of rules and different things. We create accountability partners. We start memorizing Bible verses about what is right and what is wrong so that we can remind ourselves of those things. We will even reconstruct our lives and our paths and our patterns in such a way where we never are faced, where we hopefully are never faced with the opportunity to make a decision that might lead us to make a mistake or sin in the first place. And we do all of these things. There are so many religious over-the-counter solutions and prescriptions that we could possibly take when it comes to dealing with sin. If I were to survey this room and have like a blackboard behind me and say, let's write them all down, everything that we've all tried, we'd fill that board with all the different things that people have tried in this room to minimize sin and its effects in our lives. The hard part though about it is, well, despite all of our best efforts and despite all of the ways we try to manage this and do all of these things, is that we still sin. Like that, except, wait, that's not the hard part. That's the part we accept. I actually think that most of us in this room are pretty comfortable with this idea that, well, nobody's perfect and we'd all kind of nod our heads for the most part. Yeah, no, nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes, I do too. I'm comfortable with that. That's not the hard part. The hard part is that not just that we all are imperfect to continue to sin, the hard part is that most of us are repeat offenders of specific moments and sins. That's the hard part. It's not a one size fits all type of deal. In this room, everybody struggles with. So there's some similarities with what we all struggle with, I would imagine, but I imagine that each of us, in our uniqueness and who we are and how we've been shaped and where we've come from and all these different things, we all have different struggles. And the most frustrating thing, the hard part is not that sin exists, we kind of are comfortable with that, it's that that one sin exists. And that happens to be the one that we struggle with. And that happens to be the thing that we have the hardest time with. Where we find ourselves every now and then going, and I'm back. Or we find ourselves every now and then suddenly saying like, well, crud, I thought I was past this, or I thought this had changed in my life. And that becomes the hard part. And despite all the things we've tried to overcome it along the way, despite all the ways that, that we have prescribed ourselves, all of these ways we've tried to treat our symptoms, we still find ourselves in a place where, well, four hours has passed and that metaphorical nasal drip is back. Four hours have passed and that metaphorical cough is back and here we are struggling with the same thing again. And it's frustrating because I think we don't like what it might mean about us. I think that fear pops in our head sometimes. I think we don't always like what consequences come with it. We sometimes wonder what does that mean with us and God, a whole host of different things and it gets really complicated and I think it's hard because we want something better for our lives. That's why we call it a struggle in the first place. And I think so without seeing a way around it, what many of us fall victim to, what many of us find ourselves in, is that we resort to a lifetime of doing our best to manage and prevent sin. For some of us, this becomes the chief of like core tenet of our faith. For some of us, this becomes the normative practical expression of how we approach Christianity. For some of us, this becomes how we define our relationship with God, that many of us resort to a lifetime of trying to manage sin and prevent sin and it's frustrating and I think it's hard it's hard sometimes because of the judgments we face of other people who are trying so hard to manage that and then you make a mistake in your own life and suddenly the fingers are pointed at you and it's hard because of the judgments we make on ourselves and the struggles and let's be really candid for a moment if we all are following Jesus or we really love him and this stuff is really true then shouldn't some of this be getting better you had that thought I have I think it gets really hard 
Jesus speaks to some of this in Mark chapter seven, and it's where we're gonna spend the bulk of our morning here. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter seven. If you don't, feel free to follow along on your phones or on the screen or however it is you do. Um, but let me give you a little context for what's going on in Mark seven. Jesus is, is surrounded by a group of people and there's different components in this group. So uh, in this group are a group of religious leaders, like this elite group of religious leaders called the Pharisees. There's also a group of religious scholars and they're called scribes. There's also uh, just kind of what they would consider to be the common folk of the area, which is referred to as the crowd that is gathered around him. And there's also his disciples, which are in the mix. So there's a lot of variance in terms of these people that are all gathered around. Now, at one particular point, the religious leaders, right, these people called the Pharisees and the religious scholars, these people called the scribes, they observe something that bothers them. And the thing they observe is that the disciples don't do something. And this bothers them, offends them, so to speak. And so this elicits questions. And the way that they approach this with Jesus is to ask him a question. And we see this in Mark 7, verse 5. It says, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, him being Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Jesus, why is it that when your disciples sit down to eat, they don't walk according to the tradition that all of us uphold and follow and trying to do the right thing and trying to be the right people? Why is it that they sit down and begin eating with defiled hands? This is what they're asking him. You see, there was a custom at that point in time, it was tradition, that if you really were serious about being pure, if you were really serious about not being defiled, about following God, then, then what you wanted to do was make sure you stayed clean in all ways impossible and stayed pure in all ways possible as far as they understood it. There were laws in the book of Leviticus that detailed what you could and could not eat, what was clean and unclean. There's all kinds of things that, that essentially you had to follow. If you became unclean, if you should happen to touch something that had been labeled as unclean uh, or, or had been looked at as religiously unclean, then you were immediately cut off from worship, social worship with people. You couldn't enter into that context. And in fact, most of the time you were cut off from social relationship as well until you could do what you needed to do to make yourself right and so that you could get back with people and things and all that stuff. So this was like a really big issue. There's a lot of shame involved with this. I don't know if you can feel that. And so what had happened is that the rules, is that the scribes and the Pharisees had created these rules, this system of rules, not just about the commands, about what not to eat, what not to touch, what not to do, but even boundaries and things on how to avoid ever getting into that situation in the first place. And so one of the things that had happened along the way is they decided, you know what, we're gonna wash our hands before every meal so that if there's by chance anything that is unclean even near me or that I've touched, come into contact with, even unbeknownst to me, I am pure, I am clean, I'm undefiled so that I can eat and put food into my body in such a way that I don't become defiled. That was their concern here. And the disciples sit down to eat and they have the nerve, the audacity to not wash their hands. This was actually a big deal. And they just sit down and eat. And this isn't like you and I, where you see somebody eating with dirty hands and you just kind of throw up in your mouth a little bit. It's not that at all. This isn't about avoiding being sick or like this kind of like, you know, because you could get an illness, we should all just clean the bacteria. This is not that era, not that time. This is about avoiding sin, saying pure and doing the right thing so that you don't find yourself in a place where you are dishonoring God, dishonoring yourself and being unclean. So they look at Jesus. Why is it that you as a rabbi allow your disciples to do this thing? We're all managing this, preventing all of these things from occurring. We have sin on lock. This is what we're professionals at. And this is how it is. Why are you not doing this? And this is Jesus' response to them. Look at verse six. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So they get a pretty stark response, don't they? 
Jesus, why is it that they don't wash their hands? Isaiah was right about you hypocrites, and it's like, whoa, right? And then what he essentially says to them by quoting a moment from the Old Testament is that this is all just lip service that you're paying to God, the way that you're going about this. It's like lip service to God, but your hearts are awry. Something's not in the right place there. Something's off. And you're teaching the doctrines and commandments of men. This is about you feeling safe and secure and you doing these things and you're missing the point. I think this is a really intense response. And I think because this has been created, Jesus at that point in time, then he says a few more things to them, but then he also turns to address the crowd because people, other people are privy to this. And imagine the thoughts you would have. These are the people you don't question. These are the people you don't think to like ask anything to because they're the respected authorities and you just heard them called hypocrites in a moment from the Old Testament quoted and told that that's lip service and that their hearts are kind of off. And then Jesus turns to address the crowd who's watched this whole thing, verse 14 through 16. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. That's really key. Hear my words, but don't just hear them, understand their meaning. There is nothing outside a person that, that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. This is what he says to the crowd. Hear me. Don't just hear my words, but understand their meaning. Don't just hear the literal thing. Like, get what I am trying to convey to you. Get the deeper truth. Get the understanding of what is actually being said here. It is not what goes into a person that defiles him, but what comes out, right? Now, this was a huge moment. This was. The, if, like, the people, he told them, hear me and understand. They didn't understand. The crowd didn't understand and the scribes and the Pharisees didn't understand. And the reason I'm gonna say they didn't understand is because nobody at this point in time tried to kill Jesus. Nobody at this point in time incited rebellion, started crying blasphemy or heresy, tried to have him locked up, started chanting and, and, and going crazy. Nobody did any of those things. We don't read about any of that in this particular moment. It all seems kind of amicable as it moves forward, right? But this would have been a huge deal if they had understood it. You see, way back, like I said, in, Le in Leviticus chapter 11, God had detailed, here's what's clean and here's what's unclean. And it, had, it was everything from like, don't eat split-hooved animals, right? Don't eat pork, uh, don't eat birds of prey, and even certain insects. Like, don't eat insects that swarm upon the ground. Leviticus 11.43, when talking about like, uh, not eating insects, says this, you shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms. And you shall not, here's that key repetitive thing again, not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. If they had understood what Jesus was saying in this particular moment, they would have flipped out. Because it sounds to me like he is in direct contrast to what they would have all memorized and known from the time they were kids, written about in Leviticus chapter 11 right? Eating these things that swarm upon the ground. That's just one example, by the way, of things that when you eat them, this will what? Defile you. And Jesus says, nothing that goes into a person will defile them, but that which comes out. They would have flipped out. They would, it would have been heresy. How dare you? But they don't. They don't understand. And you know what? The disciples don't either. And I think sometimes we miss this as well. We have this privilege in this passage of seeing the disciples have this next moment where they find themselves now away from the crowd, away from the Pharisees, away from the scribes, in the privacy of, of a room or intimate conversation with Jesus, and they get to say, hey, we didn't quite get it either. Can you explain, the, excuse me, can you explain this to us? Verse 17, uh, let's pick that up. It says, and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, 
then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. The word expelled there, use, it literally means enters the like latrine, so to speak. So it, it's talking about the physical process of food going through your body. It never touches the heart. He's being very literal here. Thus he declared all foods clean, Mark adds. Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. You see, Jesus starts with this question about, from the Pharisees and the scribes, saying, Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat when they have defiled hands? There's essentially this moment that comes before him. Jesus, what's your stance on that? Is this right or is this wrong? What are you gonna do about it? Why aren't you addressing this with the crowd and with the people when it's right in front of you? What is it about this moment? Jesus, what's your take? Why, I, I, like, I have a question here. And he starts with this question that is about eating things that are potentially unclean or eating with unclean hands. And rather than address the question directly, which by the way, he, he really doesn't, he sees the deeper issue and he broadens the topic at large in his response, doesn't he? It gets bigger and it gets bigger and it gets bigger. Jesus never answers them directly. Instead, he sees their fears about possible sin, purity, being defiled, and he broadens the topic to address the heart of the issue. Not just about food, but here is what makes you clean and unclean. Here's what defiles a person and what does not. And his response, as he, is, as he explains it to the disciples, I think it's powerful. I do, I think it's really powerful. He essentially looks at them and says, it is not the stuff you come into contact with in this world that has the power to defile you. It's not the stuff around you that you label as sin because you observe it that is the real problem. It is what is in your heart. It's what comes from within that has the power to defile a person. This was profound. This is like turn your world upside down in that culture type of understanding. It might even be the same right here and right now in our own culture. It's about what is in your heart. That is the thing we worry about. That is the thing that we care about. The word heart that's used here in the Greek, uh, in this Greek world that they were living in, the way heart was understood is, uh, it was in this context, it was a reference to way more than just a person's emotions, right? Because that's how we look at it. We say our heart is, is our, our Feelings, our emotions, like that's heart for us, right? When we're referencing it in our own culture. The word heart carried the idea of a person's personality. And I don't mean like their whole being and, and, and all of that. There, there's different components. But here's what I do mean. It's the spiritual and intellectual processes, including the person's will, that governed their thoughts and decisions. This is heart. This is way bigger than our understanding of heart. But this is what it means. The, in fact, the very first negative quality listed in verse 21, right? It's, it's uh, some of your Bibles will say wicked thoughts, some of your Bibles will say evil thoughts, right? Now, what, the way that that's constructed in the Greek is that that very first thing, wicked thoughts or evil thoughts, is like the umbrella for all the other things. Meaning it's the first thing and all the rest of these are descriptors. As if to say, for out of the heart come wicked thoughts or evil thoughts that look like this and that and this and that and this and that and this and that. Because that's all starting from what? Not outside of you, not the observable behaviors, but inside of you, internally, in our hearts. 
The word heart includes drives and desires, beliefs and emotions, thoughts and hopes. And in this particular moment, as Jesus is speaking to the disciples, he looks at them and tells them, essentially, if you were worried about, is this right or is this wrong, look no further than your heart and what is happening inside of you. If you're worried about being impure, clean, or defiled, if you're worried about avoiding sin, it is not that which is you're encountering from outside you, but that which is coming from inside of you. Look there. Stop looking around you and start looking within you because all those things that he lists flow out of a person's heart. This leads me to the first point that I want to make here this morning when it comes to this idea of sin, and it's this. Sin is a problem, but it isn't the problem. This is really key for us as Casas. This is us. So I'm going to repeat myself one more time. Sin is a problem. It is. It is a problem, but it isn't the problem. I want you to look at the list in verse 21 and verse 22. I'm not going to read it again, but just take a look if you have it. That list exists, right? All those descriptors, all those things, that list exists. Well, because those are real moments, real problems, real things that people face, aren't they? It's not some fictitious list. It's not some theoretical idea. Those are all things that people struggle with, things that people face. Those are all temptations that each of us in some way, shape, or form encounter along the way. And that's why it exists. It's because in there, the outplaying of some of those things create actual problems. Those are actual problems people deal with. If you caught someone in adultery or you made the choice to commit adultery, you'd have a problem, wouldn't you? Yeah. Each of us would. If you saw someone, it'd be a problem. Right? It is a real problem. If you stole something, you'd have a problem. You'd have broken the law. You'd have been deceitful and dishonest. You'd have uh, hurt or harmed another person, so to speak. And you'd have a secret that you'd have to carry from that point forward. And so your relationships are going to get weird on some things. You'd have a problem. If you murdered somebody, you'd have a problem. Hopefully that one's self-evident. Even if you're an overly prideful person, you still, it's not just this, this, you know, a theoretical idea. It will impact your relationships, the way that you treat others and the way that people interact with you. You have a problem. It is a problem, right? But that's just what you see. Those observable behaviors, those moments, those things, that's just what you encounter. That is just what you see. The real problem isn't what you see. The real problem is what you don't see. The real problem isn't observable pride. Or like, you got to stop that. It's not the real problem. The real problem is an observable pride. The real problem is the haunting and voice inside a person that says that they are less than or empty or ought to be more than they already are. And pride becomes the mask they wear to hide themselves from that fear. You can see observable pride, but it's just a problem. It is not the problem. The real problem is somewhere in here. It's a big deal. I think that we get this, and I think that the topic of adultery illustrates this in an amazing way that I think perhaps we understand and we get already. If not, uh, let me walk that out. Years ago, I spoke with a gentleman. He came to me years ago. And he let me know that he was uh, struggling with this desire to have an affair. And he said, Ryan, I don't know what to do. I said, okay. So what's going on, you know? And he said that he loves his wife, has no desire to leave her, loves her, doesn't want to change that, wants his marriage and all this stuff, but that in the past couple of months, he keeps going onto the internet and looking for women online. And he hadn't succeeded at this point in time. None of that had happened, but 
this is tearing him up inside, and he was like, I feel like I'm just steps away from making some kind of colossal mistake and all this stuff, and I'm, I, don't, I don't wanna do that. I love my wife, and I don't wanna end my marriage, but I think I'm going to have an affair. I said, okay, so what have you done so far? Like, what, what are you doing about this? And he was like, well, I've been praying about it, and I've been reading my Bible, and been reading about like verses that, that talk about how this is wrong, and this isn't what's right, and these different things, and I've been trying to memorize that stuff. And, and I even went so far as to talk to a friend, just to say like, hey, I need to tell somebody this, and, and be honest about this uh, type of a moment. And I said, and, and how's that going? And he said, not well. I feel like, I, I st- like it hasn't changed anything for me. I still feel like I, I'm struggling with this. And this was this weird moment. I, I looked at him and I, I said, so what is it that is so powerful for you about that moment when you go online and you look for another woman? And, and his response was, was fascinating. His response said, you know, I don't, he, he looked at me and it's kind of like exhale and goes, I, I don't want to be with any of these women, to be really honest. Like, they're not who I want for my life or any of those types of things. And then he said this phrase, and this was, I thought, powerful. He says, I just love the idea that someone be, would be willing to choose me. And I, I, I looked at him because I was confused by that response. I said, but your wife chooses you every day. That's a part of marriage. And then for whatever reason, I asked him this next thing. And I, I asked him, is it, is there some part of you that when she chooses you every day, you don't feel worthy of being chosen by her? And all of a sudden, this man like deflated in front of me and leaned forward and his shoulders started shaking and he just started weeping as he nodded his head over and over again. And there, friends, is the real problem. Right there. Something about the vulnerability and closeness of a relationship to his wife made him feel shame. And rather than bring that to her, He sought to go prove that he was really shameful and sabotage the very relationship that he loved, his marriage, so that he wouldn't have to quietly feel unworthy all of the time. A looming affair, don't get me wrong, a looming affair was a devastating problem, not just for him, but for his wife as well. It is a problem, but it wasn't the problem. The problem originated within that man's heart. The problem was the very thing that drove him to the internet in the first place. Sin is a problem, but it isn't the problem. So then what is sin? Because it seems like it's still like something. It's still something we should care about. We shouldn't just dismiss it, right? We shouldn't just, excuse me, write it off. What is sin then? Point number two here this morning, and I'm gonna answer this. And by the way, if you have tuned out, I don't think I'm gonna make a more significant point as far as my belief is concerned this morning. I would, I, would, I would title this entire talk this next point. And so if you've tuned out, tune back in. Point number two is this. Sin is a symptom. Sin is a symptom. This is key. This is us in terms of what, it, what we care about and what we've come to believe so deeply around here at Casas. Mark chapter seven, verse 23. Jesus ends this discourse, right, by saying all these evil things come from Within and they are what defile a person. The outward behaviors we often see and label as sin are mere symptoms of the real problem within. Think about that. The outward behaviors we often see and label as sin are mere symptoms of the real problem within. They are in fact a problem. They're absolutely a problem. 
but they're indicators. They're symptomatic of the real problem that is, with, that is within. This is what Jesus is getting at here. This is what he's, he's trying to communicate to the scribes and the Pharisees when he says, you know what, it, this is lip service. And this is the most obedient group of people on the planet. This is the most boundary group of people on the planet. This is the group of people that have observed and memorized the law and all of its forms and all of its things, but what? But their hearts are missing the point, and so it's all for naught. It's missing something. This is what he's trying to communicate. This is what enabled Jesus time and time again to look at religious authorities, to look at devout religious people, to look at scribes, to look at a whole host of them and say, no, 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 you guys, you're missing the point. You're like whitewashed tombs, he says. He looks at another point. He says, you're like a cup where you fancy and clean the outside. You polish the whole thing, but the inside is dirty and you've neglected the center of you, the middle of that cup. And that's what matters here. You're missing this. This is why every time they say, but Jesus, is that right or is that wrong? Which is it? What are you going to do here? Where he always points to the larger issue. They drag a woman caught in adultery in front of him to say, we encountered a problem. Is this a problem? And what does Jesus say? He doesn't go, yes, it is. What does he say? His very first remark, let him who is without sin cast the first stone as if to say, sure, you've encountered a problem, but why don't you take a step back and look inside? This is why every time he's asked a straight question, it's such a frustrating thing to read your Bible if you're a person who's looking for a straight answer all the time, if you're looking at Jesus' words. He's like, well, let me tell you a story. Every time, but is it this or is it that? Well, let me talk about this one, man. And the reason why is because he's always pointing us back to the heart of the matter. He is always saying, it is not what is out there, it is what's in here. Are you listening? Are you looking? Do you see? Do you understand? Those observable things are symptoms of the real thing, of the real problem. It's a mere symptom of the problem within. This is such a big, big deal. When I was sick two years ago, I finally heeded someone's advice and they were like, you need to go to a doctor. And this time I was like, no more Walgreens, I'm going to a doctor. And I did, I went to a doctor and I sat down with her and she said, so Ryan, what are your symptoms? And I said, well, I've got this cough that's lingered forever and I have this runny nose and I haven't been sleeping well, I'm tired a lot. She said, okay. So started, you know, investigating those things. She held a stethoscope to my back at one point in time. She asked me to cough and she said, I can hear crackling in your lungs. Sent me to go get an x-ray and lo and behold, I had bacterial pneumonia and had had it for some time. And I said, you know, I I was just, she was like, why haven't you taken care of this? And I said, I was just kind of hoping that, you know, I could take an antihistamine and my cough would go away and some of these things would kind of just go away. And it hasn't worked. And she laughed in like a doctor nice kind of laugh, you know, way. She wasn't mean or sarcastic, but just laughed. And she essentially said, you could have treated those symptoms all day long until you take an antibiotic and deal with the infection that is in your lungs. They're not going away anytime soon. So I heeded her advice and I filled her prescription and I went and I started taking antibiotics so that I could deal with the actual problem that was creating the overt and visible symptoms that I saw. What is fascinating to me about that whole endeavor, I have a lot of questions to ask myself. is that my chief concern in that whole thing was that I would be able to suppress my cough, that I would be able to minimize, like make my nasal drip go away and reduce my symptoms so that I could go to work and appear healthy so that I could get my job done and people would stop avoiding me and telling me to go home, right? That was my chief concern, is to do enough so that I could appear healthy despite the fact that I had a bacterial infection in my lungs. And by the way, pneumonia apparently can be kind of serious. That was a little bit alarming after I started, don't go home and Google that, which I did, don't do that. Like, 
That was my chief concern. I, that blows my mind. Friends, most of us in this church have spent time, most of us as leaders and pastors here at Casas have spent time looking at our own lives and trying to deal with and manage on an ongoing basis the sin and the temptations and things that we face in our own lives. Most of us in the, as leaders and, and pastors and teachers around here at Casas have also done this with other people who've come and said, hey, I'm struggling with this thing and I need some help. What am I supposed to do about this? Or I, I have this in my life and I don't want it to be this way anymore. Much like that man in my office. And I have practiced uh, being a person who prescribes over-the-counter applications for spiritual applications for years. We'll do this and create this boundary. And do you have an accountability partner? And are you reading your Bible? And have you memorized this? And did you put it on a mirror in front of you? And I, I can list off everything. I mean, I, I have tried so many different things, both in my own life and in trying to be of help to other people who are struggling. And it has led myself and many of us as leaders around here to this conclusion. And the conclusion is, is that we will recognize that sin is a problem, but we will not see it as the problem. The thing that we as a church care about most is the real problem. It's the condition of our hearts. This comes out in our teaching. This comes out in our preaching. This is why often I'll end a message, or Glenn or whoever will end a message with questions instead of statements. Because it is not about the statement that is said. It's about looking here and seeing the truth that you might in faith give some of that to God and walk with him. As you grow, as you transform. We are not in the business of trying to create well-behaved model Christians. I, I don't care about that at all. I'm just gonna be really frank. What makes me come to work every day, what makes me love being a part of this church, what makes me love being a part of this with you all is that we're in the business of trying to change hearts as we trust the love and acceptance of Jesus Christ to permeate our being in such a way that we actually transform from the inside out. Which brings me to the third point here this morning. And it's this, that when the heart begins to change, sin will diminish. It does, it's when you deal with those things. It's when you deal with the fears that you harbor that quietly and sometimes loudly lead us to make choices that we later regret. You start trusting those things to God. It's when you deal with the contempt and the spite that you carry that leads you to treat others poorly. And you can't bring yourself to forgive or to make peace within yourself. It's the hurts that we cling to because we don't know how to let them go, despite the fact that each of us know that hurting people actually tend to keep on hurting other people. It's when we deal with some of that. It's when we deal with the feelings and beliefs about unworthiness that lead us to self-sabotage our lives, regardless of what it is we've heard God say about us. And it's the shame from past decisions and unmet expectations that keep us pinned to our vices. Go back over the years and just start listening to some of the sermon topics and some of the ideas, some of the things, and you will start to see we care really deeply about this. And it's not because we're trying to create some kind of like, I don't know, self-help Christianity or anything like that. It's because it's in our core. All of these things are deep in our hearts. All of these things are the essence of, of where and who we are. And they are what create our behaviors and influence our thoughts and decisions. And if we reach into there with honesty and with vulnerability and with transparency, and we trust those things to the Holy Spirit who is our partner, to Jesus who actually indwells our hearts. I think that's why he makes that our home, his home. And to one another, there's a belief that there is an actual chance to transform so that we don't have to just be people who get really good at managing sin and behavior in our lives so that we can appear to be the people we ought to be. It's who we are. This is our heart. And I want to invite you into that. I want to invite you into that same journey. And I want to challenge you 
trust the Holy Spirit. Do you know he's with you? The Bible calls him our helper. Do you know that? You're not alone. Even when you look around you and you don't see anyone else, you are not alone. For there's God who is partnering with you and God has this amazing ability to transform the human heart in ways that I thought formerly impossible. Trust him. Recognize that God is good. Recognize the goodness of God. I I wouldn't be asking anybody to do this if I didn't have this firm and deep-rooted belief in the absolute goodness of God. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. It is. You've got to believe in that. Otherwise, why would you do something difficult and hard? Why would you bother to ask questions? Why would you bother to be honest? It is so much easier to pretend, although it's really exhausting, and maybe that's a lie. Be vulnerable, be honest, be candid. Embrace this, but know this, this is the journey, this is the path, this is so much of what we care about, and this is why I have lost almost all interest in the question, what's your stance on this moment or this moment? And every time, I'm gonna look at both you and myself and say, but what's in your heart and what's in mine, and can we talk about that? Because my belief is that when we surrender our hearts to God and we allow him to start moving around and changing and transforming and that grace and that acceptance impacts us, as our hearts begin to change, sin begins to diminish and we get a little more united and Christ becomes a little more clear and something really beautiful starts to happen in a church that resonates that way. This is who we are, friends. This is us. And I welcome each and every one of you. It is good to be with you. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We do, we thank you that you're good. Otherwise, I don't really know what we'd be doing. I thank you that we can be honest and I thank you that we can be candid and I thank you that we can be vulnerable and that we can trust you. Lord, for those of us in this room that have been struggling in some things for a very long time and have tried to become professionals at managing that, I pray that you open up our eyes and our hearts to see the places within us that you want to move the most and give us grace and acceptance and with great compassion. May we open ourselves to be loved and accepted by you, even in the places that are hard for us to see sometimes, that you would transform us. And Lord, I pray for those in this room that have tried to manage sin for a really long time and now hate it (laughs) and have just thrown in the towel. And I pray, God, that you would open our, our eyes and our hearts to a deeper way to a way that leads to true freedom and honesty and vulnerability where we don't have to pretend. Open us up. And as we do, may this be the kind of place where we love and accept one another just as you do, that you might shine so brightly here through Casas Church. We love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen.